Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Pestner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome back to the pod, probably a, 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 a record at this point, uh, Alex Avina. Alex is an associate professor of Latin American history at Arizona State University. Um, and he's also the author of many things, books, articles. Check all of those out. We'll link them in the show notes. And today we have Alex on to talk about one particular guy, a guy you know as AMLO, full name Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And, you know, in, in the States, we, we, we hear a lot about AMLO on the left in particular. We talk about, about uh, a lot about AMLO, but we wanted to, you know, do a deep dive and figure out who he really was. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. So close. America, so close to American prestige as always. So thank you. So far from God. So story of my God. life. So, sure. Yeah. So that's, but it's great. Thank you. That's a good one. Thank you so much for it. Well, I mean, I think we've talked about it before that Mexican Mexicanists are uh, banned from using that Porfirio Diaz quote. So we, you know, I gotta. So I might get in trouble for that one. <laughs> we'll 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 let it slide. But so why don't we just you know who is Amlo? Why should we care about him? Why is he an important guy? <laughs> uh, so let me just let me just start by saying that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about a single individual powerful person in, in Mexican history and current Mexico that goes against all my philosophies as a historian in terms of how I conceptualize and define history. But but here we are. So uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the current president of Mexico, uh, a longtime figure in in Mexican politics at, at various levels. Um, I mean, we can start with the, going back all the way to the 1970s um, when he became involved first politically um, after graduating from the National University of Mexico City, UNAM. He goes to the state of, uh, well, he's in the state of Tabasco on the, on the, on the east coast of Mexico, very oil-rich state. Um, and he works on the Senate, Senate, camp, camp, Senate campaign of a poet, Carlos Pellicer. And that really begins, usually all his biographies of, of AMLO begin with, that moment of him working with Beiser's senatorial campaign, that then will elevate him into the PRI local and, and state level structure in Tamaulipas. Um, and that throughout the 80s, that will mark his ascendancy within uh, the state level PRI party structure uh, to the point where he becomes president of the PRI at the state level in the state uh, of Tabasco. Sorry, I don't want to say Tamaulipas, Tabasco. But as, as, as what happens in, in Mexico in the 1980s, particularly after the, we've talked about it in other episodes, after the, the massive default of 1982, um, the PRI really becomes split, or a split becomes pretty public between economic nationalist PRI figures and more of these like Ivy League tank trained technocrats. And as a consequence of that, or one of the consequences of that, is that the PRI will lose its more progressive leftist wing of the party. Um, in the late 80s, they will go and found their own political coalition led by the son of Mexico's great left populist leader, Lázaro Cárdenas, who had been president of Mexico in the 30s. His son, Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, leads this move away from the PRI, founds his own coalition and runs for president in 1988, at which point AMLO also goes with that progressive, more economic nationalist wing of the party. Uh, there's, uh, you know, this was a highly contested election. There's, there's fraud 
Um, and eventually this coalition led by Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas will become the PRD, the party of the Democratic Revolution, a uh, par- political party that still exists in Mexico and actually politically currently is, is pretty inconsequential. From then on, you know, uh, AMLO will run for the state governorship um, in his state of Tabasco twice, and he will lose to the PRI candidate twice. Throughout the 90s, he's involved in a series of social movements. He leads a national march from the state of Tabasco to Mexico City. Uh, he's involved in uh, blocking access to oil wells to highlight uh, environmental pollution and damage caused to indigenous populations and communities who live near the oil wells. Uh, there's a famous picture of him from the mid-90s where he... he he, he, his, his face and his shirt is all bloody because he got beat up by the cops who were trying to open access to the oil wells. Uh, so his like nationally, his, his, his rise really begins in the mid to late 1990s, at which point he becomes president, uh, the national president of the PRD. And that leads his, to winning his first election in 2000 as the mayor of Mexico City. And he'll be mayor of Mexico City from 2000 to 2005. Um, and in many ways, I think his time as mayor of, of Mexico City is, is really interesting when you compare it to his time as president of Mexico from 2018 to, to today. Um, both are marked by really high levels of popularity. You know, one thing that we can't take away from AMLO is that he does have the support of the masses in Mexico. And we can talk about that in terms of why. Um, I think he finished his, his time as, as mayor of Mexico City with like above 84, 80% approval rating, um, which is, you know, it's pretty unreal. It's crazy it, it, politically. Um, and, and right now, currently, as president of Mexico, I think he's well over 60, maybe even 65 percent approval rating as and he just had a recent massive march in Mexico City on Sunday where people from all over the country came to demonstrate uh, their support for him and his project. And the current mayor of Mexico City estimates that over a million people attended the march. Who knows if that's accurate, but it, judging from the pictures, it looked like a lot of people. Uh, during his time as, as the mayor of Mexico City, Amlo, because he is the mayor of Mexico City, one of the biggest cities in the world, he has a, he has a huge political platform, and he's able to do a lot of this. I mean, a lot of things that are similar to what he's tried to do as president. Um, he provided, he created a bunch of financial assistance programs for the most vulnerable populations living in Mexico City. Um, he added a really popular bus service line. He added levels to um, congested freeways, main freeways uh, in the city. Um, but also, I think, you know, I, one of the things that I, that I laugh when I hear, when I read and, and, and listen to Americans talking about Lamlo is that for a long time, the epithet of a uh, fiery leftist is attached to his name. Um, but this so-called fiery leftist also hired Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, as mayor of Mexico City to help him with uh, implement a, a zero tolerance crime policy. And didn't he um, ally during- with Carlos Slim to redevelop the downtown as well? Uh, and yes, you beat me too, Danny. Yeah, and he. Sorry, the, the and I, don't, I just want to say, uh, Rudy, if you're listening, uh, the third mic is open still uh, on this show. So, <laughs> He's only uh, responded yeah, to a few of our emails, but I'm hoping get, he'll, uh, he'll agree. Know, get back to us. Perfect for radio, right? Because visually, he's kind of scary to look at. But yeah, so like Carlos Slim, he also allies himself with Carlos Slim, which is a relationship that has continued to this day. Um, and as you mentioned, Danny, you're, you're quite correct. It was to rejuvenate. Uh, the Zócalo, the very center of Mexico City, where you have, uh, you know, a, a old cathedral, you have the National Palace, and you have this big plaza in the middle. It's built on top of what used to be the main pyramid of the old Mexica city of the, Mexico, Tenochtitlan. So it's a lot of the, I think, the accomplishments and the contradictions of his ideology, ruling style, approach to political power are encapsulated as this t- when he was uh, mayor of Mexico City from 2000 to 2005. And, and you see a lot of those same things 
during his tenure as president. After that, because of that platform, he runs for president in 2006. Uh, there was, you know, during going back a little bit in 2000, there's the, the first election, presidential election that the PRI, the governing party, had lost in Mexico since like 1929. The right wing party, the PAN, the Partido Acción Nacional, comes in under the uh, uh, Vicente Fox, and uh, who's, you know, quite the character. Um, and actually, the PAN and the PRI tried to do some legal maneuvers to prevent AMLO from running for president in 2006. Um, and it was very, it was a very transparent uh, maneuver to get him in trouble, to strip away his immunity, to get him in trouble, to prevent him from running. Um, and, you know, at the time, like the New York Times are, is making this argument, right, that this is a very transparent effort to prevent him from running because people knew that he was going to win. He was so popular. We get to the 2006 election and he runs against a very uninspired uh, bureaucrat from the PAN, uh, Felipe Calderon. Unfortunately, from the state of where my parents are from, Michoacan, much to our embarrassment. And you have this hotly contested election where Felipe Calderon wins by like two tenths of a percentage point. Um, it was a really dirty campaign in the lead up to it. I, I lived down there. I was living down there doing research for my dissertation, 2005, six, and seven. And uh, I remember watching just the, 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 the commercials that were playing, the anti AMLO commercials. And it, it was the, the more, uh, the one that played the most, the most famous one was this commercial that would show pictures of him with like Latin American leftists and El Subcomandante Marcos. And they would say, AMLO is a threat to Mexico. Um, and he ends up losing that election. There's, there's, and he makes the claim and a lot of his supporters continue to this day to make the claim that, that, and it's a plausible claim, I think, considering the history of electoral fraud in Mexico, 20th century Mexico, that the election was stolen from him. And throughout 2006, he, uh, once the election uh, happens in July of 2006, after that, he, it, I think he calls out his supporters to not give up the fight, and they will occupy the main thoroughfare in Mexico City for something like 50 days, and they will set up a shadow government. They proclaim him to be shadow president of Mexico, the legitimate president of Mexico. And it was quite a thing. I was down there in 2006, and it was quite a thing to walk through the main thoroughfare in Mexico City, people living on it, right? Like I, I played soccer on that street with a bunch of kids who were like camping out with their parents inside of tents, and they, and they did this for like 50 days. As a, as a protest against the, the 2006 electoral campaign. And I think that is, that's a big moment um, in AMLO's political formation. That and also the, the uh, governorship battles that, that he lost to the PRI in the late 80s and early 90s have really marked, I think, his approach to dealing with, with particularly electoral institutions in Mexico. And he has a famous quote from 2006 where he announces that he's the legitimate president of Mexico. And he says, all these institutions can go to hell. So I al diablo. Um, and he doesn't go away. He, he, he runs for president again in 2012. Um, this time he loses by a much broader margin to the PRI candidate, Enrique, Enrique Peña Nieto. He, according to Time Magazine, the man who was supposed to save Mexico. Um, did he save and it? He did not save Mexico. Mexico was not saved. Okay. Just clarifying. Mexico wow. was not okay, saved. Okay. Breaking news um, again. Breaking American news. Prestige. You heard it here first. Mexico was not that saved. Poor, poor Peña Nieto. <laughs> He's been reduced to like wearing wigs while he goes to restaurants in New York City or in Europe as he's going around with his uh, with his girlfriend. So that that campaign, so the PRI returns to power, and and as a consequence of that, there's a split within the PRD. They're like, we don't. There's a sector within the PRD that says um, we don't want to support Amlo again as as candidate, and Amlo leaves the PRD, which began again as this democracy left more left of center progressive uh, formation in '88. 
And he goes and he found his new party, uh, Morena, the Movement for National Regeneration. Can't remember the, exactly what the acronym stands for. Everyone knows it as Morena. Um, and that's since since 2012, 2013, that's been his his current political party. And, and adding a new party to uh, to an already quite uh, crowded uh, political party field in Mexico. And that leads to him running for president again for the third time. He in 2018, uh, he runs, you know, between 20, 2012 and 2018, he visits every single municipality in Mexico, something over like 2000 municipalities. Like he's it's very clear that he's going to run for president again. But he says this is going to be the last time. The third time is a good time. I'm not going to do it after that. Um, and obviously the, the winds are in his favor, right? Peña Nieto, as we said, did not save Mexico. He continued a catastrophic approach, uh, highly militarized approach to the drug issue in Mexico that had been initiated by Calderón in 2006. Uh, obviously, Peña Nieto presided over the horrific uh, mishandling of what happened in Ayotzinapa in, in September 2014 when 43 male college students were picked up and disappeared by a, a coalition of, of military, police officers, and, and narcos in the state of Guerrero. And that really sunk Peña Nieto's uh, uh, campaign or presidency, especially because they just completely botched the response to it uh, because they were trying to protect people. Um, that and, you know, by the time we get to 2018 presidential election, you know, two to 300,000 people have died uh, as a result of this drug war. Uh, you know, 50 to 60,000 people disappeared. Um, AMLO's campaigning, uh, promising a new approach. Uh, this is where we get, if you hear, if you've read stuff about uh, AMLO, particularly uh, criticisms of his security policy. Um, a lot of U.S. observers will criticize his hugs, not bullets approach. Well, that was just rhetoric. Like he actually never implemented that once he became president. Um, but but it, that 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 campaign promise um, and, and just promising a new approach to the economy, a new approach to the security policy, it, it did a lot to get to 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 propel him to just a a huge win in 2018. Like it was a massive win, electoral win. So there was a lot of fear that if the if it was close, that they would do something again to steal the election. But he won by so much that it didn't matter. And he became president in 2018. Well, well, damn, Alex, that was impressive. I feel like uh, we should just send that around to everyone. The 14 minute capsule history of uh, Amlo's life. Thanks for giving that. Um, so I think we're going to spend the rest of the time just talking about um, how Amlo has governed as, as president. You know, something he's been waiting his entire life to do. Before we do that, could could you maybe talk a little bit about his ideology? Like, what are the forces that shaped him? What do we need to understand about him or the contours of Mexican politics, the state of the Mexican state, as it were, to appreciate how his administration has functioned? Yeah, so he announces his victory in 2018 as an epic moment in Mexican history. He calls it the fourth transformation, right? So the first being Mexican independence, the second being the victory of the liberals, the, liberal move, the liberals in, in late 19th century Mexico, the third being the 1910 Mexican Revolution, he says, we are the fourth movement and we are declaring the end of neoliberalism. Um, and he starts to uh, deploy this rhetoric that it, the, the government is not going to be corrupt anymore. We're not going to be neoliberal anymore. And we're going to follow this austere republicanism. So I think to understand AMLO, I think we really need to think about just Mexican political culture in general that goes back all the way to the late 19th century, right? This idea, this this there's a certain popular nationalist definition of liberalism in, in that that was created by an array, uh, an array of popular movements in late 19th century Mexico, generally 
uh, arrayed against uh, Mexican conservatives who were allied with foreign invaders, for instance, right? So the idea of liberalism in Mexico becomes really connected to popular movements that will connect citizenship to defense of the nation, to patriotism. They will, they will not emphasize private property and individual rights per se. They will, they will emphasize solidarity, social justice, and communal uh, links and, and power. And, and in some of that, the way that, that these ideas kind of shape and move and shape and change throughout the 20th century, um, mixing with the PRI being in power from 29 to 2000, all that's the, all these different forces help make AMLO who he is, right? So when we think, when we hear rhetoric from the U.S. media in particular calling him a fiery leftist, one, that makes me laugh because that's not his style. If you've ever, he's on the TV every single morning, Mexican TV. He starts his day off with a press conference. There's no way you can describe that style as fiery. Um, and his leftism is, is, is something, again, that we have to contextualize within Mexican history. And it's a particular variety of liberalism that goes all the way back to the 19th century that becomes that shit that, that changes throughout the 20th century, impacted by the 1910 Mexican Revolution. Right. So, um, it's, it's things that, that things like, uh, the pillars are, I, I guess, of his ideology would be economic nationalism, right? Protecting the sovereignty, the political sovereignty and the economic nationalism of Mexico, right? So, He's made a big deal in his administration to protect the energy sovereignty of Mexico, right? Nationalizing Mexico's, or attempting to nationalize Mexico's lithium, um, uh, trying to claw back a lot of the privatized oil contracts that were put into place in 2013, by, 2014 by the Peña Nieto administration, um, and trying to restart Mexican, Mexican oil production, which he's taken a lot of hits from, for, particularly from U.S. Uh, the, uh, observers who saying that he's depending on fossil fuels and dirty energy and stuff that they weren't complaining about throughout the 1970s and 80s when they were getting Mexican oil. But then on, on this, like on the social side, he, a lot of his popularity has to do with the fact that he, he's like a preacher, right? So he, his concern, like he's actually pretty conservative socially. Um, even though during his 2018 campaign and during his, his victory speech, like he talked about gay rights, he talked about trans rights. Um, but that's not who he is. Like who he is con- socially is a really conservative religious guy. Who, when people ask him what is religion, he, he's not Catholic, right? He he plays this game where they'll ask him, okay, what's your religion? And he'll say, I'm a Christian, in but not in the evangelical sense, but in the sense that I follow Jesus because he was the greatest social fighter in the history of, of mankind. Like like so he like he plays this game where he doesn't he's trying to just say I'm broadly defined as a Christian. Um, but he won't say that he's a Catholic or he's an evangelical, so even like, though like is, one of his, oh, go ahead. So sorry. So I just, I'm trying to get a sense of what that, you know, small C conservative conservatism means with someone who's not officially connected to the Catholic church in Mexico that, so like what could expand on that maybe a bit? Yeah. So he'll talk a lot about, uh, individual mores and, 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 and morals as, and, and the importance of the family and helping to uh, mitigate or undermine some of the, the, the violence and the different, uh, types of violence that Mexico has experienced since 2006. Right. So focus on the family as a way to, and, and family structure as a way to, to, to attack one of the structural factors that produces violence in Mexico. Um, he's shown, he hasn't been very receptive to um, this very powerful feminist movement that has emerged in Mexico that's decried, you know, feminicides, that this, this wave of, of, of gender-based violence and, and homicides that has afflicted Mexico, honestly, for a long time, right? Like from um, the first time I remember hearing about it was like the early 90s when these women were, were found, you know, their bo- lifeless bodies were found on the outskirts of Ciudad Juarez. Um, 
So it, it, he's not like he doesn't have the most progressive leftist views on 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 gender, on on gender relations, on sexuality, um, and 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 so. But at the same time, he in a way he's reflecting like where the mass of the population is, I think, right? And that helps, I think, explain some of his popularity. That uh, socially, he's a conservative guy, and there is a certain level of social conservatism that continues to exist through most of Mexico, even as the country has legalized gay marriage and actually have, have passed in the last 10, 15 years some really progressive legislation, both at the state level and at the national level, with uh, about reproductive rights and gay rights. Uh, but he he personally, when he talks about these things, he comes off as being like a like an older conservative dude when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality. Can we talk about AMLO as neoliberal, or is that an accurate way to understand him? And maybe in that context, can we talk about, I'm very curious about what he thinks of Mexican international relations, um, particularly with the United States, but also vis-a-vis Latin America, because I haven't heard much about that. But um, so neoliberalism and then foreign policy. Well, neoliberalism doesn't exist in Mexico anymore, Danny, because he declared it dead in 2018. Uh, I'm so sorry. It's over. <laughs> but let's, let's have a moment context. of silence. Can we just have a <laughs> yeah. moment of silence for neoliberalism in Mexico? Pour, because it's so interesting to me, homies. the transition from mayor to president, that just doesn't happen in the United States generally, but yeah. it, it's a different structure. It's just a totally different structure. Mexico City is about 25% of the population, 20% yeah. of the population. It's a totally yeah, different thing. So, yeah. so sorry, to, but so neoliberalism and foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I think the rise to his step from mayor to president, I think, also took two failed president presidential campaigns, right? So, yeah. I so, think that actually, first actually Alex, can I, yeah, I wanted to yeah. add that because I, I feel like there's, there's some argument to be made that the failed runs for the presidency may have changed his approach to politics. But, but you can, you know, add comment on that as you're sort of talking about maybe, you know, may caused him to, to be less revolutionary and a little more like, reformer than than revolutionary but i don't know you can you can you know incorporate that into your your comments here yeah I, perhaps i mean i think that's that i think that could be that can be and has been overstated i i think i mean i one difference is okay he did for the 2018 election he did demonstrate an ability to expand his coalition right to it to, to kind of tamp down on some of the more uh let's say quasi leftist messages about the economy or about social reforms. Right. So he could bring in like he, for instance, in 2018, he brought, he could count on the support of a small evangelical party, um, which is a really right wing party. Um, so I think he's de- definitely changed some of his style, right? Like he's not taking, he, he, he doesn't take to the streets anymore and he's not doing the stuff that he was doing in the eighties, nineties, or even two thousands. So I, I do think he has demonstrated more of a flexibility to bring in, uh, individuals and, and political formations that probably in 2006, he wouldn't have done. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that he's brought in a long, a lot of like old pre dinosaurs. So like the most infamous one that I can think of is Manuel Bartlett, who was like the guy who oversaw, uh, the electoral system, you know, falling, you know, Secayo, uh, failing in 1988 that led to most likely the electoral theft, uh, that's, that helped the PRI. The guy now is because he's such an economic nationalist, at least rhetorically, that that Amlo brought him in, and he's the head of Mexico's public utility electric utility company. Um, he, the, the the current attorney general of Mexico, Alejandro Gertz Manero, is a really nefarious guy. He's got a terrible history, um, super shady. All going all back to the dirty war of the nineteen seventies. 
but because again, he, he, he deploys that, that, that nationalistic, ultra nationalistic discourse. Um, it appeals to, to Amr on that level. And now he's got this immense power as attorney general of the country. And he's been highly criticized for, uh, for a lot of recent, uh, prosecutions and a lot of failures as well, including the, the Ayotzinapa case. Um, so, so I think Manuel has become more flexible, but I think that's also just part of the Mexican political system. Like one of the things that distinguishes the Mexican political system, I would say since the 1980s, since the, the breakaway of the, uh, the PRD from the PRI is that people jump ship all the time. Like there is, it's hard to, to, to clearly trace out the ideological lines that divide political parties in the Mexican political system. Like it, it became a habit to jump from one party to the other if one party didn't support a person's candidacy for the office that they sought. And they could give a shit about going from a leftist party to a rightist party. They didn't care as long as they got that that candidacy. Um, Mexico... Could, oh, what does that suggest about Mexican political culture? Maybe could you talk about Mexican political culture for a second because that'll help contextualize it. And it's just, it's different than the United States's. Yeah, I mean, I, so, so high political culture, I think it's, there's, there's marked by a lot of cynicism, a lot of, uh, pragmatism and flex, ideological flexibility. Uh, people will jump ship on, uh, for parties depending on what they want to get from a particular party. Um, so that's why you see the constant, like, uh, moving back and forth between parties that ideologically really doesn't make sense. But if you look at what that individual wants to accomplish, particularly in the on the economic front, right, in terms of graft or uh, the opportunities for graft or the opportunities for economic advancement. I mean, that, that really motivates a lot of these people. Plus, like the Mexican political system, it's almost kind of structured to, to enable this type of, of, of party jumping, right? So Mexico's Chamber of Deputies, I think it's there's 400 seats that are decided by direct election and then like 100 seats that are determined plurinominally. So depending on how the parties did in the elections percentage wise, electoral percentage, that allots them a certain number of seats. And then there's like a fight over the seats. So you have these plurinominal uh, uh, deputies, the, the equivalent to the House of Representatives here, who are there not because they won uh, an election, but because the party chose them to participate in Congress, in their Congress. So that also is really shady. And actually one of AMLO's, uh, one of his proposals for reforming the electoral law in Mexico is to re reduce the, the number of deputies in the chamber of deputies by like a, by like 200. Um, in terms of like low political culture, I mean, the PRI did quite a number on political, popular political culture in Mexico for the time that it was in power from 29 to 2000, right? So this idea, there's, there's deep seated corruption, there's deep seated uh, cynicism about what uh, politics and politicians can accomplish in Mexico, right? Like there's, and, and you hear this, um, from most people throughout Mexico, from the countryside to the city, there's like a deep seated cynicism, um, that in large part, I think was shaped and formed by the fact that you had a single party rule in the country, um, and, and in the manner that they ruled in, 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 in authoritarian ways for, for nearly eight decades. And I think this is why this also helps explain AMLO's popularity because AMLO is one of the few, if not the only politician who is seen as not being corrupt, as saying, as being earnest, as, as not being like irony pilled. Like he's seen as an earnest guy who, who does, uh, who, who, who does what he says, right? Like he practices his, the poor people first philosophy, right? So when he flies on airplanes, he doesn't, he doesn't have his own private jet. He doesn't fly first class. He's in the back with his people. Uh, and he doesn't like having security around him. 
Um, so there are people, for all his faults, for all his mistakes, people will give him the benefit of that because he's seen as a guy who's not corrupt. And that's a questionable claim. I was going to ask, what's your take? Corrupt. What do you as the analysts think about Amlo's and his relationships to the culture? Because you keep on saying he's seen as. <laughs> uh, so I just, what do you think? There's been, so there's been a couple of allegations of corruption close to him, right? His brother uh, allegedly was caught up in some sort of corruption scheme last year where he was getting dollars in paper bags given to him. It's allegedly it's on video. Um, and then there's a big scandal, which I think it's not much of a scandal, but that one of his sons has like a, like a nice suburban home outside of Houston. Um, and somehow he got that through some shady connections through a company that has relationships to Morena. And there was like a no bid contract, et cetera, et cetera. So there's people around him that are most likely involved in some of these schemes that essentially like structure Mexican political, the Mexican political system. Um, and it's very difficult to not get, uh, sucked into it, but he, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm trying to think of an example where there's been like, a. am trying to think, I know there's at least maybe one or two where he's directly charged with doing something. I, I, and I, they're not coming to mind right now, but again, it's almost like it, it, from the, from the perspective of the masses, from the perspective of the 65% of Mexicans that, that support him, um, he's seen as like the one guy who's not corrupt. And, and, and part of that has to do with his, 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 the way that he is, the way that he lives, the way that he carries his everyday life. But it's also, you know, backed by, by that discourse, right? That he's, that his whole movement is against neoliberalism, which he associates with corruption. Um, and his government marks like a departure from that, even though like in terms of political economy, uh, that neoliberalism is alive and well in Mexico. And if you see, if you look at the numbers that when it comes to like social assistance and spending during the COVID-19 pandemic, like Mexico's numbers were really low. Um, they actually didn't give a lot of social assistance um, in contrast to like, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, who was trying to win an election. But um, and he would he would come back and say, well, I didn't do that. And I, I allowed for and that allowed for us not having to take out foreign debt, foreign loans. And that allowed for, um, as Bloomberg called it the other day, the stability of the super peso. Um, apparently, the Mexican currency is doing really well and it has done well for four years. And and in the last 30, 40 years, that's been one of the biggest um, most traumatic things that will happen in Mexico, right? The devaluation of the Mexican peso and the social, economic, and political damage that that those devaluations have caused, uh, and the immiseration that they've caused. So, yeah, it's. So I I I, I don't know if I answered your question, but it, it's uh, at the very least he's seen as the least corruptible of of Mexican politicians, and he's also helped by the fact that there is no political opposition in Mexico, like opposition political party. The uh, the people against him are like, you know, the most Isley Cantina. Like, there's no way, like, these people um, are able to, they, they haven't been able to, and they won't be able to forge some sort of, like, anti-AMLO, anti-Morena coalition. It's It just it hasn't gotten any traction. A lot of it has to do because these people are, uh, to be honest, like, very awful, like, terrible people. Alex, I want to talk about, uh, I wonder if, if we could talk a little bit more about AMLO's economic approach as president and, and particularly uh, maybe talk about his energy policy, which has gotten a lot of pushback in the United States in this very, it seems to me, cynical greenwashing type way where, you know, he's, yeah. he's favoring the state electrical company over outside private entities. Uh, and you have a bunch of politicians in the United States who couldn't give 
you know, couldn't care less really about climate change going, oh, my God, this is going to be the death of green energy in Mexico. And and what they're really upset about is that it's cutting American companies out of the, the loop to some extent. That's that's my take, at least. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I think I think you're you're it's right on what you're saying, Derek. Um, I think not to minimize actual like concerns about economic or uh, the environmental and ecological damage that uh, regions of Mexico has suffered as a result of fossil fuels and, and oil. That's that's like an actual thing, right? But I think the way that U.S. politicians and media people uh, deploy this attack against uh, an energy policy that seems to be bent towards some sort of economic protecting the economic sovereignty, energy sovereignty of Mexico, is it's an argument based on, it's a bad faith argument. It is greenwashing. Um, it's, you know, just today, this morning, uh, the Washington Post editorial board just published something about how Mexico should stop AMLO from ruining Mexican democracy. And a huge part of that, a good chunk of that editorial has to do with fossil fuels and how his focus on renewing and increasing oil production it's bad for the the, the, the the global climate and it's bad for Mexico and it's going to be bad for the United States. But it's hard to take that. So there, on the one hand, there are really serious concerns and it, I take them more seriously when they're coming from like land defenders in Mexico, from indigenous communities who have been waging struggles that predate AMLO to protect land resources, protect water resources, protect forestry resources. Um, but they apparently don't aren't allowed a voice in American media. What we hear is U.S. politicians and people from like the Council on the Foreign Relations saying doing that greenwashing bit um, and mad that Mexico's restarting or trying to rejuvenate um, its production of oil and natural gas. But actually, the, the more important story for me is that there's serious consequences on the ground with this type of energy policy. And it's led to the death of land defenders, right? Mexico, I think in 2022, has the highest number of land defenders and environmental activists killed, um, it, along with also at attacks on journalists who report on this kind of stuff and journalists in general, Mexican journalists have suffered um, a high number of killings in, in the last 10, 10 to 15 years. Um, so I think when it comes from the U S it is greenwashing. I think it's, it's, it's bad faith. Um, and it's seen it's, I think that's, it actually helps AMLO's argument, right? Because our AMLO will come back and say, see, these are the people who are actually trying to undermine uh, uh, Mexico's energy sovereignty and our ability to dictate what we should do with our energy resources. Um, while, What's missed in all this are, are the people at the local and municipal level who are leading these efforts to prevent um, ecological catastrophe and, and damage caused by by things like natural gas and oil production. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, something that you uh, have alluded to or you alluded to earlier in the interview is uh, the security situation uh, and particularly uh, AMLO's militarization or further militarization of law enforcement. Uh, you mentioned the... Uh, you know, hugs, not bullets approach, which much like defund the police, you know, has, has gotten play in, in American media, even though it, it didn't happen. It's still what people are obsessed with. You know, he's he's, you know, soft on the cartels. He's soft on whatever. But but in fact, I mean, he's he's gone some degree to, to sort of in, increase the level of militarization uh, in, in terms of law enforcement and, and dealing with violent elements. Uh, in Mexico, this includes, you know, uh, uh, something you just talked about, the, the, the rise in, in deaths of activists, land defenders, journalists. Um, maybe you could talk a little in general terms about 
the militarization of, of the drug war, uh, both, you know, I know you've done this before on this show, but but just to give people context uh, for this particular interview, and, you know, both in terms of what the Mexican government has done, but then in terms of what's happened with the cartels, we talk about the, uh, you know, in the in the U.S. particularly, the the converse, conversation is always about the drugs coming across the border. It's never about the guns that go back the other direction, um, and just kind of what the state of of that conflict is at this point after uh, you know a couple of years or, or a few years here with AMLO in power. Yeah, I think the issue of, of public security is, is the biggest issue in Mexico. And I think it's a lot easier to campaign on a platform that says we are going to look at the structural factors that explain this type of massified industrial level violence that Mexico had experienced since 2006, 2007, and then actually taking office and then realizing, okay, I can't depend on a, on a, on a federal police force that is thoroughly infiltrated by uh, criminal elements um, which then leads, you know, AMLO to, to disband this federal police force and create his own, which is called the National Guard. Um, and the National Guard was supposed to hit, at, you know, establish a certain level of, of, of public security, um, particularly in the in the provinces in the countryside where a lot of the drug violence, drug related violence, had been occurring. I mean, obviously be- before uh, 2006, right? Like in the article that I wrote for you, Derek, for foreign exchanges, right? Like this. The Mexican military has been waging the war on drugs uh, on and off since like the night, at least since like the late 60s, early 70s. But you do what what happens after 2006 when Felipe Calderon orders, um, you know, more than 10,000 troops to his home state of Michoacán to take out uh, a group that was called La Familia Michoacana and then became the Templar Knights, which is it's crazy, these drug names. But um it's it's only it's it's been a ratcheting up of this militarization as the only response to a very increasingly powerful, increasingly paramilitarized drug trafficking organizations that are making money by selling, uh, you know, trafficking and selling drugs to the United States. In some instances, they are you know they were taking iron ore and other precious metals from the state of Michoacan and selling it to China and then receiving precursor chemicals for like meth and other drugs in return. Right, this. These are, and then they're also paramilitaries that they're getting trained by uh, military uh, experts from throughout the world, right? There's been reports of like Guatemalan special forces, Israeli special forces, all these like the, the, the most elite violence workers in the world were coming to Mexico to train some of these groups. So that also explains some of the, 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 the violence that takes off after 2006. So I think what, when, when AMLO takes office, um, I think quite quickly he realizes that he's not going to be able to uh, immediately implement this this approach that takes a look at the structural causes of the violence. Um, and I think he realizes primarily because this is a binational issue. Like Mexico cannot solve this issue by itself, as you quite rightly pointed out, Derek. The 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 weapons, right? Like the fifty caliber Barrett guns that are being used to shoot down helicopters or, or shoot down, you know, police trucks and, and military uh, uh, vehicles, that's coming from the U.S., right? Like massive amounts of weaponry is coming from the U.S. And that then is fueling this conflict. At the same time, the profits, drug profits that are going mostly to the U.S. are also fueling this conflict. So also, I think uh, Amlo was thinking, what is like the one institution that I can depend on to kind of wage this war? And he came, he realized that, oh, he could, he made the decision that he could only count on the Mexican military and the Mexican military for all of its horrific things that it's done, uh, as, as my research uh, focuses on since the 1970s, it still enjoys more or less a high level of, of public support. Like when they poll people in Mexico, that's like the one institution that has the highest degree of confidence 
um, in terms of like being least corruptible, et cetera. Um, and he, in, instead of following the, 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 the hugs, not bullets approach, um, even though he constantly says that he is, uh, he's doubled down on this militarization approach. Um, and as, as I wrote for foreign exchanges earlier this year, right, like making changes in, uh, in, in, in law that allow the, the Mexican military to continue to be deployed legally in the provinces to wage battle against these paramilitary drug trafficking organizations that have expanded and diversified their operations. So now they're in control of migration. Now they control, uh, you know, they're, they, they control, uh, natural resources. Um, they, they, they diversified their business portfolio to, portfolios to go beyond just the, the production and smuggling of drugs into the United States. And that I think to me has been the biggest disappointment. I mean, I understand to a certain extent why and how he did it, but there was a lot of promise in 2018 that he was going to genuinely uh, uh, use a different, an alternative approach to the drug issue in Mexico. And, you know, something like legalizing drugs and, and mar- small amounts of marijuana have been legalized. Um, but another really interesting approach that was being uh, passed around 2018, 2019, almost a bit too late was to legalize the, pr- the production of opium poppies, right? Because so much of the heroin that the U.S. was using and consuming was coming from these small peasant farmers in Mexico in the mountains of Guerrero, Sinaloa, who were the ones uh, producing the opium gum that would later be refined into heroin. There was proposals to kind of legalize that and then to create, like, to nationalize it. So Mexico could produce, like, the morphine and the opioids that it needed on an, for itself nationally, through the nationalization of this of this economy, um, and uh, you know, even before that, those proposals took shape. Uh, fentanyl completely knocked the bottom out of the of the opium and the heroin uh, economy, and those farmers have been suffering pretty badly since about 2017, 2018. So he's doubled down, and and that's been the biggest disappointment. And the fact that he he's very clear about it now. And when people ask him about well, what happened to what you were promising in 2018, he said, well. He'll respond by saying, well, I, the, that's not feasible now. And in the, in the short term, we need to establish some minimum level of security before we can start to do uh, the alternative approaches to, you know, harm reduction, increase social spending, et cetera. But that the, it's the militarization that is really probably the biggest factor that's creating more and more right. and more of the violence. It's a, right? it's, so it's a spiral. It cre- yeah. And, and it's, it's really difficult to see how we get out of this. And again, fundamentally, this is a binational problem. Like the U.S. has to be involved in this problem when it comes to drug consumption and when it comes to all those weapons that are flooding Mexico. And it's not just Mexico, right? Like a lot of what's happening in Haiti, uh, the underreported part of that story is that it's tens of thousands of U.S. weapons and rifles that are making their that have been making their way into Haiti for like the last 10, 15 years. And and these groups are, are highly armed with American made weapons. Right? So it's it's destabilizing not just Mexico, but it's destabilizing other countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. We're fulfilling the right to bear arms around the world. You're welcome again, as usual, <laughs> yes. uh, rest of the world, the United States is standing yes. up for your rights. We need to do yeah. one on, on the arms industry. Uh, Alex, uh, people here might have heard a little bit about AMLO's response to COVID. Um, do you mind talking about that for a sec? Uh, yeah. Uh, so his response to COVID was like, poor. I mean, I think, so I'm trying to think, okay, so the one anecdote that, that I think about when I think about, okay, what anecdote like kind of exemplifies Amro's approach to COVID. He was asked one time why he, early on in the pandemic, like why he didn't wear a mask. Like, cause he wouldn't wear a mask, right? And he, he pulls his wallet out and he takes out a picture of a saint. 
it's almost like a pic of a saint that you can, it's a cloth like thing you hang around your neck, a scapular. Um, and he pulls it out and he's like, I don't need a mask when Saint so-and-so is protecting me. And it's just like, fuck, man. Like, how can you be telling people this uh, with this unprecedented, you know, global pandemic? So he he dragged his feet a lot when it came to just simple things like encouraging people to use to, to use masks um, early on. Um, his the the there's a lot of controversy about his main the main scientist that led the effort against COVID. Um, there was a lot of uh, a- accusations that he was oh consistently downplaying the number of infections, the number of deaths. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, social expenditure really didn't rise to help people who lost their jobs, right? Especially people in the informal economy who uh, were unable to be out in the streets working, selling their stuff because of the pandemic. So there was the, the, the social spending aspect of it and, and not, and then him personally not embodying, I think like a, an, like an adequate approach to how to deal with the pandemic um, were, were quite disastrous for Mexico. And Mexico, I think is cost. I think when you look at statistics, it's in the top 10 globally of people who got infected and people who died, if I remember correctly. Um, so it was, it was, I think it was a disastrous response um, on par with, with what you saw in, in other countries. Um, and the fact that he personally seemed to not be taking it seriously. Um, and he got COVID. I think he got COVID twice. Um, uh, I think is also really undermined some of the, I think at the local and the city level, there were really effective campaigns, but they really needed, especially in Mexico city, like Mexico city took it very seriously because so many people got sick and died at the beginning that I think the city government did, a, did a, an adequate job uh, and, and an aggressive campaign to to get people to to take the necessary uh, precautions and, and 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 mitigations. But they needed that backup from the state and the federal state. And I think um, Mexico and Amro were lacking in that regard. But I will say that the first case we think came from like a rich Mexican dude who was like an Aspen and flew back to Mexico, and and that was for a while. That's that was a narrative. So that may or may not be true. It's always hard to kind of trace these things out. But if that's the case, if it was really the rich Mexican dude coming back from skiing and like Aspen or Vail or wherever it was, oh man, that is like, yeah, we can, we can draw a lot of symbolism. Too, too poetic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alex, why don't we end on the question of AMLO's foreign policy? And you could take that in whatever direction right. you'd like. Um, can I, I, I would, I would, I mean, if you could, uh, yeah, Danny's right. Taking it in whatever direction you'd like. Eric I'm, I'm is curious. disagreeing with me again. I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I'm, I'm really How not. How dare you? But... Never in public. Never in front of everyone, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's a tendency in the U.S. to kind of slot AMLO in uh, with the, the resurgent pink tide. And I, I think you've, you've made a pretty compelling case that he doesn't necessarily fit uh, in that box uh, in this interview. But I'm uh, as you're talking about his foreign policy more generally, kind of curious about uh, the ways that he's related to um, these kind of left of center uh, leaders that are, or have, have kind of started rising to power across uh, other parts of Latin America. I feel, I don't even want to talk about a resurgence pink tide. I feel like I'm going to jinx it and it's not going to happen, but um, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I will say this. So what allows uh, AMLO to find common cause with like Lula, with Boric was just in Mexico over the weekend with Fernandez in Argentina um, and some others is this, is there Mexico's long held tradition of like respecting national sovereignty and, and, and the, and the, uh, 
the integrity and the protection and the non-interventionism that has marked in, you know, Latin American politics throughout, you know, most of the late 19th to 20th centuries. And so Mexico has a long political tradition of supporting, of being non-aligned and of respecting the sovereignty of other nations. Therefore, they're supposedly they're not supposed to make any sort of comments about the internal affairs of other nations, as long as those nations respect Mexico's sovereignty. And that's a, that's, that's a, you know, that, that is a, potentially a really interesting, powerful building block for a broader pan Latin American Caribbean sphere or coalition that can serve as kind of like a bulwark to the U.S. to the U.S. empire's worst tendencies. Um, and I think that's what allows them to connect with um, on a hemispheric level with with people who are uh, who are starting to be identified with this with this resurgent pink tide that, that I'm kind of skeptical about. But and you, we saw this during the, the 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 him not going to the summit of the Americas, right? Like he made a big deal about saying we're not going because you guys aren't inviting Cuba, you're not inviting Venezuela. And while I think a lot of that was for show, because I think Amlo Amlo actually doesn't like getting involved in international affairs as much. That's not his strength. Like look up what he said about Ukraine. Like the dude is kind of out of his depth. But at least within Latin America and the Caribbean, he tends to be he, his instinct is to go for a certain type of Latin Americanism against the United States. And that's why he managed to like rile up all, the, all this, I think, a, a helpful discussion in the Summit of the Americas that, that turned to the question of, well, why aren't we allowing Cuba and Venezuela to come? They're part of the Americas, regardless of what the U.S. thinks of their internal situation, uh, an internal situation that the U.S. has helped make really bad. Um, they should be allowed to, to be at the Summit of the Americas that, that posits itself as a forum for all of the American countries. Um, but... And also, you know, the, another really uh, positive example of, of this is when he provided safe haven for Evo Morales after the coup against him in, in Bolivia, right? Like, um, he immediately stepped up and provided safe haven for Evo Morales. This is part of a long Mexican tradition of well, going all the way back to the Spanish Civil War to South American exiles in the 70s escaping uh, dictatorships. Like, Mexico has served as a safe haven, safe haven. Even at the same time, and I have to get this in, Mexico, uh, AMLO's migration policy is awful. Like, he, he has a Trumpian let's, migration policy. I was going to ask about that. Could you, let's move into that. Yeah, yeah. And we could end on the migration policy. That would be great. Yeah. So, and it's connected to the migration policy. So the one negative, big negative example, and I think it hasn't been discussed enough in terms of AMLO's supposed Latin Americanism is Mexico co-wrote a, a sponsor, they co-sponsored a resolution with the U.S. at the, at the OAS, I think. Uh, or the United Nations, where they were calling for intervention in Haiti, right? So, like, and and that has to do with migration, right? Because ma- Haitian migration, uh, Haitian migrants in the last ten years, let's say, um, they, they try to get to the United States to claim, I think, I think, legitimately claim, rightfully claim, asylum and refugee status. And if they they can't make it via water because the Caribbean has become a Trumpian wall, thanks to the Coast Guard and, and U.S. tech. So they go to Mexico, and then from Mexico, they tried to cross into the United States to claim asylum. So it was in AMLO's interest to, to sp- co-sponsor a resolution that, in his mind, probably would lead to some sort of intervention that would prevent more Haitian migrants and refugees from leaving that island country and coming to Mexico. But one of the other really disappointing things from, from his campaign promises in 2018 is that he was, he was very anti-Trump, and he, was, and he, and he promised a very radical a refugee migrant policy that was building upon Mexico's best historical traditions, right? Like accepting 40,000 Spanish Republicans who were fleeing the Spanish Civil War in 19, throughout the 1930s. And it, sadly, it, during the last two years of Trump's administration, he, uh, AMLO allowed Mexico to become the wall. 
that that that's the simplest way to say it. So so uh, Mexico didn't build the wall and they didn't pay it as Trump claimed, but the entire country became the wall and the border of the United States and Mexico was moved down to Mexico and Guatemala. And that new national police force that AMLO created, the National Guard, instead of deploying them against narcos and against drug trafficking organizations, it was, it's been primarily used against Central American and Caribbean and now uh, Venezuelan migrants and refugees who are trying to get to the United States to claim asylum. And that's been really disappointing. I think his anti-migrant policy has been really disheartening. It's been really, for me personally, enraging, right? Because you're the president of a country of migrants. Like millions of Mexicans have been able to migrate to the United States and find a better life. Uh, you should be, uh, you know, sensitive to that. Um, and, and then you combine that with Mexico's history of 20th century history of accepting refugees and asylum from seekers from other countries. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a disconnect there. But he would say... Um, you know, popular polls indicate that uh, these migrants coming through Mexico are actually very unpopular amongst Mexicans. And I'm just reflecting the will of, of the Mexican population, which I think, you know, political leadership helps determine what can influence and shape how the masses should, uh, you know, act or think politically in these key issues, I think. And he, he hasn't shown that type of leadership. And he's followed, he's followed, a, to, to put it bluntly, he's followed a Trumpian policy or let's say an American, a U.S., because I, I actually don't see much difference between Trump and Biden's policy. So let's just say he's following a U.S. migration policy and he's serving as a colonial gendarme of the U.S. and serving in, in, in policing migrants from coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. This feels like another area where it's sort of a, a, a campaign promise unfulfilled, and like like the problem with the, the cartels and violence where he talked about addressing root causes and has only wound up kind of perpetuating and furthering militarization. I mean, he talked about addressing root causes of migration from Central America in particular, and, you know, kind of economic development and and, uh, unwinding a lot of U.S. primarily policies that have devastated that region. But you're right. I mean, you know, he doesn't have a partner in the U.S. Biden has been pretty much uh, undifferentiated from Trump. but, But at the same time, it doesn't feel like he's pushed back very much. He's been very willing to, as you say, make Mexico the wall. Yeah, I think any, you're right, Derek, he, he has talked about, and I think that Mexico even has given some, like minimal, but some economic aid to Central American countries. The, the thing is, he recognizes the structural factors, which is interesting, right? Like he recognizes the structural factors that cause these issues, um, and then chooses not to follow that route per se, and to follow the militarization route, or the punitive route. But I think you're right. I think part of it has to do with the fact that he doesn't feel like he has a partner in the United States. And he's right. Like in the United States, um, as long as there is some semblance of stability in Mexico, the United States could care less who's in power. They demonstrated that throughout the 20th century. Um, you know, and so it's the fact that the funniest thing to me is to, to lump like Trump and AMLO together under the label of populism. And that's what the, that's been the, the go to by U.S. media, you know, writers and observers. But that, that, that does very little to explain or to elucidate like some of these more complicated political, historical and, and social processes that, that are really important, right? Like this, I, th- these migrations are not going to stop. If anything, they're going to increase um, as a result of, well, as a result of a bunch of factors, right? But primarily climate change and what stimulates climate change. And Mexico is going to have a really uh, big decision to make in the future as to what is, what are they going to do? How are they going to position themselves? in a world that's going to only have increased migration and refugee flows? Are they going to follow the U.S. role and continue to be its colonial police officer? Or are they going to do something more radical, much more humane? 
Um, and, you know, AMLO on Thursday, on Sunday announced that he, his new political approach is something he called Mexican humanism. I have no idea what that is. Uh, but, you know, perhaps this is one area where he can start to demonstrate however he vaguely defies this new approach called Mexican humanism. Well, Alex Avina, thank you so much for joining us again. And we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you so much, guys. As always, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.